Welcome entrepreneurs and startups to Art of the Kickstart, the podcast that every entrepreneur needs to listen to before you launch. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president and founder of Inventus Partners, the world's only turnkey product launch company that has helped over 2,000 innovations successfully raise over $400 million in capital since 2010. Each week, I interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level. This show would not be possible without our main sponsor, Product Hype, a 300,000-member crowdfunding media site and newsletter that's generated millions of dollars in sales for over a thousand top tier projects since 2017. Check out producthype.co to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. Now let's get on with the show. All right, welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today we are speaking with the one and only Jake Epstein. Jake is the co-founder of Rocketbook, Tango, and several other consumer startups. This guy is a true D2C expert, holds degrees in electrical and computer engineering from Purdue University, go Boilermakers, and began his career designing large-scale computer systems and somehow ended up designing notebooks and phone accessories. Jake's amazing. He and his team uh, and his business partner, Joe, you know, they've worked on over a dozen products now that they've crowdfunded. Some made millions, others didn't do so much, but they've had a lot of fun and a lot of failures on the way. Jake's current product, Tango, is this really cool grip stand. It's this, uh, as Jake would say, a geometric marvel of steel and magnets. So I'm super excited today to have you on the show. Jake, thank you for joining us on Art of the Kickstart today, man. Thank you. And th- thank you for the exciting intro. I'm so happy to be here. I love the podcast and I love crowdfunding. So I'm, I'm excited to talk. Absolutely, man. No, uh, I remember it was right before the pandemic. I had your biz partner, Joe, on the show in March. And, uh, you know, it was really fun to talk about all of those things, Rocketbook and what was happening with your business there. But, you know, I'd really love for the audience to get some of your background and kind of what led you to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, sure. Sure. Happy to. Um... Happy to uh, give you my background, and hopefully I won't repeat too many things. Joe and I have different opinions on everything anyway, so we'll have different versions of the same story. But uh, um, as you mentioned, my background is in engineering, um, and I started my career off by making large-scale uh, computer routers and video delivery systems for like the back end of like, cable companies and things like that. And I think what was – even though that was super fun from an engineering standpoint – I always crave the consumer market because in the consumer space, you can make decisions in the morning that affect your business in the afternoon. And when you're on the enterprise side of things, there's like these multi-year horizons. Um, And so if you're a product person, if you're an engineer, even I guess a marketer, uh, and maybe I'm a little bit of all those things, uh, just like if you want, if you want the fast lane, consumers where it's at. And so I'm starting in about 2010 I began to transition from enterprise engineering into uh, into the cons- uh, consumer space with uh, an app company, as well as my first consumer hardware product, which was a, a helmet that you could listen to music and make phone calls through uh, through bone conduction and uh, and like ride your bike around. And I ended up selling that to a um, a bike company here in Boston. And then um, you know from there it was just a series of other. That was right around the time that crowdfunding was getting big. So we're talking about you know 2014 ish, and um, from there, my interest in consumer hardware and crowdfunding, like the lines intersected at just the right time, 
and it probably the 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 early crescendo was probably the first rocket book campaign which is when i got to beat you for the first time i know i think that was like six years ago maybe give or take a few months but it's just amazing yeah. and Give our audience a little bit of background because I know a lot of the listeners that we have on the show, just based on when we survey them, a lot of them are solopreneurs. So I'd be really interested to know how you and Joe got together and then, you know, formed this company and did all the things that you guys have done now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. It's, um, I, I guess, I guess in some ways I still feel like a solopreneur in the sense that, you know, you're, if you're a person that's always looking for the next big idea and you're always trying to solve a problem. And I think combine that with uh, the positioning of the product, so to speak. If you know how to pitch it to someone and you play with that pitch, I think I'm always doing that. And Joe was a person that I knew who was also always doing that. And we were friends before. our We've known each other uh, technically since college and we're in the same social circles. But we would get together and talk about different product ideas and things like that. And um, and and this here here's an important story that Joe may have shared with you, but Joe was working on a um, an app to scan whiteboards, and it was uh it was just a just a software application, and his goal was to you know make money by selling downloads or, or uh, membership to the to the app, and um, one day we got together to have a beer in a bar, and he said, you know I'm thinking about applying the software technology to notebooks, and it was like a light bulb went off, and I was like. Like yes, because then you can sell a physical product, you know, with the uh, with the software, and that opens up all these doors to monetization. That software just becomes very difficult, you know, to to monetize, and that's usually why software companies end up taking tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. Whereas if you're selling something physical, you can make money on Amazon and Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all these other places, and so. Uh, from this conversation of combining Joe's uh, whiteboard scanning technology and his idea to apply that to a notebook uh, was born the first uh, the first rocket book. Couple ideas that have changed the world now over a few Sam Adams, right? <laughs> yeah, add it to the list, right? Nice. Yeah. So let's talk about your newest invention, Tango. What led you to kind of pivot a little bit in terms of, you know, this device that you've created and what problem are you trying to solve with it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a uh, good question. And to, to set the stage for it, I think um, it was uh, it was conceived in during, during the pandemic when like the time when like, everyone was stuck at home and just, you know, looking for things to keep yourself sane. And in, in my case, I've, I've always been a fan of having a, a grip or stand on your phone and sort of the go-to there is pop sockets. Sure. But, and I had one on my phone for a long time and I, and I do kind of like pop sockets, but they're so thick and like, there are these like fugly monstrosities that are composed of cheap plastic and glitter. And I was kind of embarrassed to be, you know, to be an adult walking around with it on my phone. There's just like, there's no pop socket that looks like an adult should carry it around for the most part. And, uh, and so I was stuck at home and I just started getting in my shop and playing around with, um, you know, steel and magnets. Uh, and I came up with what became the Tango. And so the Tango is a, is a phone grip and stand sort of like a pop socket, but it's uh, less than half the thickness, uh, a third the thickness of some pop sockets. So it's 2.9 millimeters thick. It's composed almost entirely of steel. Uh, it opens with the push of a button and then it instantly adds a secure grip to, uh, to your phone. Uh, so you can just press the button and then 
prop it up on a table to watch a video or hold it up very uh, securely and comfortably to take a selfie or just to scroll through your phone while you're walking down the street. So I got to ask, since it takes two to tango, how'd you come up with the name? (laughs) So I'll be completely honest. Uh, I was always looking for a name that would project like your phone as a dance partner, because when you use the tango, it, it feels like it's like stuck to your hand because there's like some compression between the top and the phone. So you can really throw your hand around almost like you're dancing with a dance partner. And so I came up with the perfect name, the disco, but that was taken. So I couldn't use the disco. Uh, so I, uh, I came up with tango, which is, uh, which is a close second in my mind. Nice. No, I like it. I mean, overall, the design looks great. So if you would, again, I know you've got a shop and you're a tinkerer and an engineer and, you know, we love working with folks like yourself. What was that process like, though? You know, take yourself, I guess, back to your Rocketbook days and now to this physical product that you're creating. What's what's changed in the industry or in your design process to be able to bring this product to market so quickly? Oh, yeah. So. Uh, you know better than better than I do how much things have changed on Kickstarter, right? And and I'll I'll be completely honest with you and the audience. When when it was 2015, we were working on the very first Rocket Book. The sort of the move back there was the the purest form of crowdfunding, where you would just crowdfund an idea. But yeah. unfortunately, um, you know, I'm still waiting on my coolest cooler, which is never going to come now. There was just enough of those out there, right? Where um, it stepped up the game in a very healthy way, where you know now. Uh, to to crowdfund, you really have to have the the product design uh, and as much as the supply chain as possible uh, well baked, right? And so, with something like the Tango and any you know any other product that I work on crowdfunding, and I'm sure anything that you're working on today too, you have to spend a lot more time upfront before you crowdfund. And so, a lot of times that comes at a cost, right? Uh, where you have to go out and um, engineer it, design it, find some of your um, uh, your supply partners so that when you actually land on crowdfunding, you have all of that lined up so that you can uh, make sure that you deliver to your backers. And uh, I'm proud to say that this, this is my 12th crowdfunding campaign. I've always, uh, always delivered uh, every one of my, um, every one of the products. And that's such a huge thing too, right? In the crowdfunding industry, the, the trust and transparency of the creators and obviously delivering the product. Yes, many times there's delays, but at the end of the day, there's creators like you and Joe that actually deliver the product as advertised or even better, honestly. I think there's been some products that you guys have done that you've actually made improvements on based on your feedback from the crowd. So in terms of the prep work that you did for this one in relation to the dozen or so campaigns before this, what's changed there on your process? Yeah, I guess I think probably it just in general, you get better at anything, the more you do it. Right. And so I think that there's a, there's a few different dimensions to crowdfunding. Right. And so I think every time you do, we do a new product, and so something like the Tango, you know more and more what the pitfalls are later. So no matter how much you prepare, there's always a pitfall later. Somewhere between crowdfunding and shipping to, uh, to backers, there's always, there's always some pitfall. The last Rocketbook product we did, it was a black swan event and COVID came out. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was, we were waiting for ships to come into the, uh, the port of LA, right? And there's things that you just can never predict. And so all that experience sort of culminates in your preparation for any crowdfunding campaign. Uh, with Tango in particular, there was 
it's it's a an amazingly uh, complex product as far as to get something that's made of steel that's that thin that uses like these micro magnets and the coatings to make it comfortable on your fingers. There was a lot of engineering that had to go on with it, and so I ended up enlisting a product design firm up here um, in the Boston area called Tool. Happy to give them a plug because they've just been great partners, and also bringing on a uh, a, a, a industrial design and mechanical engineering partner named Lucas, who's down, who have worked with a little bit uh, on a number of different projects in the past. And so together, there's just focus on that engineering, focus on the supply chain so that you can ensure that uh, it's it's uh, buildable in the way that you're uh, presenting it to uh, to the crowd and also know what your what your timeline is. Just quickly on the flip side of that, I think that the reason I love crowdfunding is because it mixes product design and engineering with theater, right? And yeah. so you go to crowd. It's like a it's uh, it's more than just um, you know marketing or video marketing. It's like a fashion show for your product concepts. So yes, you have to do all the all the engineering. I don't want to call it boring, but like the the more the more booky and spreadsheet stuff. But then all the preparation you put in um, to something like the video and your assets. And I, I'm really proud of the Tango video. We've gotten a lot of awesome feedback on it. My video completion rate is the highest of any other video I've, I've done. Nice. It's funny. It's it's uh, positions the product well. And so I think it's one of those things you can't uh, underappreciate either one of those, right? You need to have your ducks lined up on the engineering side and supply chain side. And you have to make sure that you have like the hottest video and the hottest assets possible that convey the idea properly. And it's when those things, t- it's when those two things come together perfectly that uh, you get a successful crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I also want to mention the fact that you have tens of thousands of backers in your community now that have trusted you over the years with your next and greatest innovation. This one as well, I mean, you'll hit a thousand backers within the next day or so. How have you guys gone about managing backer feedback into product updates or just constantly communicating with them to ensure that they're satisfied at the end of the day when the product gets delivered? Yeah, so so I should mention, you know, Tango is a is a separate entity from from Rocketbook. So I haven't really engaged like the Rocketbook crowd on it, just because you know when you have a um, not just a company, but you have a community around something like notebooks, it almost feels spammy to go out to them and try to you know pitch something else. And 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 I realize that there's companies that um that that do that, but a lot of times when people build a crowdfunding community around a series of products. It's like peak design, which is all sure. sort of like that high end, um, you know, uh, like camera uh, accessories yeah. and, and, and bags yeah. and luggage and uh, great, great company, great crowdfunders. Whereas if you're into like lots of different things, it, it's a little tough to, to cross uh, pollinate uh, too much. That said, what Rocketbook has given me more than any other um, crowdfunding community I've built is access to, I think, uh, hundreds of thousands of backers that we've had over the course of our eight crowdfunding campaigns at Rocketbook. And you know, we've learned that the, the best way to interact with your community is actually the easiest. And that's just total transparency, right? You have delays, like, yeah, you're going to have some people that give you give you some crap in the comments. But it's just way easier to get on camera and say, hey, look, look this is what happened. This is what we thought was going to happen. But this happened instead. Here's the new thing. And, and you just go on from there and you end up getting more high fives and just more lo- brand loyalty than if you try to obscure it in any way. 
Yeah, no, it's so much easier that way. Uh, I know you'd mentioned this earlier and obviously with this black swan event and the pandemic, but shipping is always something that comes up. And I know with a lot of first time creators, it's typically an afterthought or just, oh, shipping will happen. Right. And now we see a lot more folks that are lining up their shipping, their logistics and all of that just to ensure that products get delivered on time. What are some of the things that you guys have changed over the years to ensure faster shipping or better shipping or just a better experience when the product comes to the consumer? Yeah, right. And, and these days, I guess you kind of have to worry about shipping on both ends, right? You have to worry about shipping from wherever it's coming in if, if you are doing any overseas manufacturing. And then there, I think the best rule of thumb is just give yourself a big buffer. <laughs> and then uh, as far as uh, shipping to the consumer, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that I feel like it's there's a, a change happening. I see a lot of campaigns that will do shipping later. They they add it usually in a survey after your campaign. Um, right. I've always been a big believer in just charging shipping up front. I just find it easier. I think m- maybe technically it lowers your conversion rate or or reduces your um you know some of your some of your fees. But I'd rather just charge it up front. Which if you do that means that once again you got to do your homework, right? There's no making that stuff up. So. I work with a third-party logistics um, supplier actually here in Massachusetts, again, out of convenience because it's local and I can go there if I need to, yep. but th- I don't think that's any sort of a requirement, but working with them, building, um, you know, taking a prototype, building dummy packaging and shipping it to them. This is literally what I did for Tango and then got rates. I said, put these in boxes and give me rates for uh, all over the U.S. and you know the top ten countries that we usually see from crowdfunding campaigns, which is you know Europe, Australia, parts of Asia, and things like that. Is that typical? Because that sounds really clever. It, it, yes, it, it is because all you have to do is get burned by uh, unexpected shipping rates one time okay. before you say, you know what, it's worth the time to do that. So I would recommend. But what I just described, anyone can do on any product. I mean, you just have to have the approximate dimensions and weight. And you better have a 3PL lined up anyway yeah. um, and give it to them and get your rates. Uh, the other thing too, and, and you know, I'd be interested to get your opinion on this as well, but we've also learned that some countries are just not worth the hassle, even if you take a little flack for it. You know, I think we typically don't ship to Russia or some other parts of um, Asia. And just you have to be selective as to which countries you ship to because not only um, not only is it the expense, but then you have this back and forth where it gets lost in their customs or it's just undeliverable for one reason or another. And then after your successful crowdfunding campaign, the last thing you need is, you know, 50 people just harassing you because you've shipped them something three times and still hasn't got to them. Yeah, no, definitely something that's changed over the years, right? Where when we were launching campaigns 10 years ago, it was just like, yeah, I want my product to go everywhere. I want every country to have my product, right? And now you learn that, yeah, it's very difficult and expensive to get product into certain countries, especially if there's some sort of battery in it or technology built into it. Like there's so many different elements and certifications that you might have to pass that's specific to that country. So, yeah, we've definitely seen a limitation, if you will, in the amount of countries that creators will typically ship to. And, yeah, it's usually going to be the top 30 countries. And then after that, you know, there's there's exceptions certainly to the rule, but usually that's after the campaign is over, where you just want to make sure that you deliver the successful product to all of your backers, get all of your logistics lined up, make sure that there's no big issues with it. Then you can start expanding out strategically into regions that 
really do want this product, but you just haven't been able to ship it to them yet. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And what do you write? This is such a funny little crowdfunding detail, but I, that's why people are tuning into the show. What do you recommend these days for for charging shipping during the campaign or after in a uh, in a survey? Uh, it usually depends on what stage of the product development phase they are at, right? Because if they just have the working prototype that they made for the campaign, for the video, for the assets and all of that, most likely it's going to change its look, shape, weight, dimensions, packaging, yep. colors, logos. So we usually recommend like, let's you know get a basis of what it is. We can put in the campaign, the cost will be between this range per region. But after the campaign is over, when everything is finalized, that's when we'll typically, you know, have our clients go and use, you know, software or import it into Shopify and have the customers back it and support it there and then just take care of the shipping fees inside of that system. Yeah, that's a yeah, yeah, I, I that that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially if it's something that's relatively heavy and can easily cross over the line to some different shipping rate. You just want to, if you don't know the exact the exact yep. weight, I guess, of your product, then it's uh, probably worth waiting. Exactly that too. And I mean, how is it going to look in retail? Right? Like, is this going to be something that's fully put together on a shelf space that hangs, or is it something that the consumer then puts it together so it's flattened out when it ships? Right? Like. There's so many different things that can happen after a campaign. And the last thing you really want to do is lock yourself into something that says, oh, you told me it was going to be $15 to ship. Now you're saying it's 30 because of all of yeah. this. Well, I don't want it anymore. Just refund my pledge. And that's the last yeah. thing you want to do, obviously, in terms of you needed that capital to bring this thing to market. Hence why you ran a campaign. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So I guess I'm speaking from someone who's pretty much only crowdfunded small things. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, you get nice small flat things, right? <laughs> Medium alum, good to go. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So Jake, with all your experience in running these campaigns, you know, give me some reflection. Like what what would you do differently for maybe this campaign with Tango that's currently active on Kickstarter? Um, definitely for the audience, go and check that out before that ends. But you know, in terms of your next innovation or next product that you guys launch out there. What are some of the things that you guys are looking forward to in the future of changing? Yeah, well, that's a um, that's a that's a great question. Like I said, you learn from every single one, and I think that um, uh, when your uh, Tango uh, is is being crowdfunded, you know, independently, and uh, although we uh, we you know we tapped into some some previous campaigns that have, that have worked on, uh, you know, my uh, my partner Lucas had a previous phone accessory, and that's obviously relevant to uh, something like Tango. So as everyone knows, if you have a pre-existing uh, email list or community, nothing better than that. But I think that uh, doing all the prep work up front, something that we didn't do for Tango was uh, collect leads ahead of time, which is something that you can uh, do with someone, a partner like Ventus and other ones where you can just do some some pre-Kickstarter uh, uh, or or Indiegogo uh, ads to collect leads, as well as line up some PR to get that traffic. Because once you're on uh, Kickstarter, there's no getting off. Like you're you're on the slide, right? And yep. so your options for generating traffic, which is in a lot of ways really what it comes down to, uh, become far more limited. So, and crowdfunding is a is a place that's just that changes on a year to year basis, right? And so you can be one of the top projects in the design category, right? Which is uh, which is where Tango is. And 
you know, there's some days where that just doesn't generate a lot of organic traffic, right? You have to bring it in from outside. And so focusing, I think you can never focus enough ahead of time on how you'll bring that traffic into your campaign because you could have the best campaign in the world for the coolest uh, product in the world with the best conversion rate in the world. But if you don't have any traffic coming in, no one will ever see it. And so I think that's that's my number one thing that I, I continue to, to learn about and uh, and somehow always kick myself on that I should have done more preparation. So uh, any surprises on this campaign then? Um, any surprises on this campaign? Um, you know, I think, uh, well, I mentioned before, I'm, uh, I'm really proud. I knew the video was great, but uh, you know, just a lot, a lot of backers come in and they just give us pat on the back uh, in the comments as well as the, the campaign surveys, just telling us how great the video is. And um, I guess I'm not surprised because we were proud of the video to begin with, but that just feels really good because you put a lot of work into it and you, you don't know if the stuff is going to land. And so I think that that's, that's probably the, uh, the most positive uh, surprise. And then I think, you know, it's always interesting too, because you can, you can do pricing studies ahead of time, but you know, you don't, you, you never really know what the right price for something is until you get someone to get out their credit card. Right. And so uh, playing with that, with like different versions of, uh, of rewards and different tiers and like underlying pricing is that always produces interesting you know, results and surprises, I think, no matter what your campaign is. Absolutely. Yeah, we do a ton of that, you know, the pre-campaign marketing and the testing and the product validation as well as price elasticity, right? Like, what does that conversion rate look like as we bump up the price and where does it break? Can we launch it at a higher price point just based off of the testing that we're doing, sending tens of thousands of visitors to a landing page and seeing, you know, if they actually convert or are ready to put a credit card down to pre-purchase it? Yeah, that's great. Everyone, listen to Roy, do that. <laughs> well, Jake, this is going to get us into our launch round. So I'm really excited to uh, fire questions away at you. Are you good to go? Uh, yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm, let me take a deep breath. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So, what inspired you to be an entrepreneur? Uh, what's, I, uh, I don't think I had any other path in life for, for a job to, except to become an entrepreneur. You know, it's, if you're a person where you're, always trying to solve problems and your mind races about it. I think that that's your, that's your, that's your only option. Absolutely. So if you could meet with any entrepreneur throughout history, who would you want to have a beer with? Oh man. Um, I think it's so, it's so cliche, but, uh, I was, I was like an early fanboy of Steve jobs. So I just, I, I just, I can't help but say Steve jobs. Okay. So what would have been your first question for Steve? Um, How'd you do it? You know, how, because if you look at what that guy overcame in the uh, early days of uh, of computing, it's just it it's crazy. I mean, you see in the movies, but if you if, if maybe you've read the auto or the biography of him, it's uh, the the um, the things that Apple computer was able to overcome in the in the um, incumbents at the time was just was just amazing. Absolutely. So what book outside of Rocketbook would you recommend for our listeners to read? Uh, no, I, I have a few of them, but I'm going to say the number one is uh, for any entrepreneurs, Lean Startup. Big believer in Lean Startup principles. Absolutely. Um, so what advice would you give to a new inventor or entrepreneur that's looking to launch their product on Kickstarter? 
best advice I could give someone is in the, I, I would have a lot of advice for them, but as we already discussed, do your homework. You, you got to know how much it's going to cost to make and how long it's going to take to make it. Like you got to know that. Absolutely. Uh, what's one invention that's made your life easier during the pandemic? Uh, Peloton. But Peloton has blown my mind, which which is also an interesting crowdfunding story because they, it wasn't even that impressive of a crowdfunding campaign. And now they're a multi-billion dollar uh, publicly traded company that's going to be now acquired by probably Nike or Amazon. So uh, it's a big, big fan of Peloton. Yeah, I'm with you in that boat, Jake. I'm, uh, I think I'm 72 weeks straight on it now. So it's like, you know, during that pandemic, that's all we could do is just work out at home, right? I will have to, we'll have to connect and race each other. Absolutely. It's on. <laughs> Last question for you, ma'am. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? I think that the future of crowdfunding is, I believe it's going to be uh, an extension of, uh, of where it's gone in the past year, which is more of a, of a pre-sale platform, for lack of a better word, where uh, deliveries and creators get more and more reliable and the communities get more and more uh, vibrant around uh, the crowdfunding uh, products and, and serial creators, hopefully like myself, but many others too. Because for a long time, it was the Wild West. And I think the crowdfunding uh, the greater crowdfunding community suffered because of that. But I think that now it's becoming a more reliable, almost pre-sale platform. Absolutely. Well, Jake, this has been amazing. This is your chance to give our audience your pitch, tell people what you're all about, where they should go, and why they should check out Tango. Yeah, absolutely. Tango is uh, live on Kickstarter. It's uh, one of the top design products uh, projects right now. Uh, you can go to go to Kickstarter and search for Tango. And again, it's an ultra-thin steel uh, phone grip and stand that deploys with the push of a button. So check it out. If nothing else, I know you'll love the video. So come take a, come take a watch. Awesome. Audience, thanks again for tuning in and watching. Uh, make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for the notes, the transcript, links to everything we talked about today. And of course, I got to thank our crowdfunding podcast sponsor over at Product Type. Jake, thank you so much for joining us today on Art of the Kickstart. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Thanks for tuning in to another amazing episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a better business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, show us some love by giving us a great rating on your favorite listening station. And of course, make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for all the previous episodes. And if you need some help, that's what we're here for. Make sure to send me an email to info at artofthekickstart.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode.